Welcome to episode number 13 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring Jane Anderson, the writer and producer behind the new HBO miniseries, Olive Kittridge, who is exquisitely played in the show by Francis McDormand. Olive Kittridge is based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Elizabeth Strout, which chronicles a marriage over the course of 25 years. The show also features an extraordinary cast, which includes Bill Murray, Zoe Kazan, John Gallagher, Rosemary DeWitt, and the incredible Richard Jenkins as Henry, Olive Kittridge's husband. On this week's episode, we discuss the development of Olive Kittridge, which was originally brought to Jane Anderson by Francis McDormand. All four episodes of Olive Kittridge were directed by Lisa Chelidenko, the Oscar-nominated director and screenwriter behind The Kids Are All Right, starring Annette Bening, Julianne Moore, and Mark Ruffalo. We also go into detail about Jane Anderson's writing process and adapting stage plays into films, which Jane Anderson did for the Emmy Award-winning Normal, starring Tom Wilkinson and Jessica Lange. Also, her experiences writing for television on the show Mad Men and the half-hour comedy The Facts of Life, which at the time featured Ed Zwick and Oscar winner Paul Haggis on the writing staff. We'll discuss what Jane Anderson learned from those early days in the writing room. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And you can follow us on Twitter for the latest updates at jogroad. And now we join writer Jane Anderson as she discusses the very beginning of her career working on the half-hour comedy The Facts of Life, which also featured writers Ed Zwick and the future Oscar winner of Crash, Paul Haggis. i kind of start off at the beginning of your career. Uh, you were actually working on The Facts of Life, which was like a half-hour Oh my comedy. God. Uh, oh, you're going to bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting is that uh, Ed Zwick and Paul Haggis worked on that show originally, is that right? Yeah, isn't wrong? that amazing? Yeah, Paul Haggis actually was one of my executive producers, so I, I worked under him. Wow. Um, he used to um, uh, sit me in in the his office and he would smoke like a chimney. <laughs> and uh, he, he, would, he was so restless in the job. I remember he had um, a pencil and it was one of those ceilings with the little dots in it. So he showed me a trick that writers do, which he would throw the pencil straight up and see if it would stick in the acoustic ceiling. Um, so, you, you know, these early sitcom jobs are what you do when you want to break into the business, when you want a parking place in your life, when you want a steady salary. Um, I was writing for theater, and um, to be honest, I, I was a horrible snob at the time. And I thought that writing for television was kind of declassé, but I needed a job. What writing for a series, especially a comedy series like that, which just requires a lot of just throwing the words out. Um, right, you know, I'd be stuck in a. I, he, Paul would uh, throw me in the room with Martha Williamson, 
who then went on to create uh, Touched by an Angel. And we didn't know each other, so he'd just throw me in with her and and say, you know, write, write about uh, Tootie and Joe going to the grocery store, blah, blah, blah. Right. Write a scene. We'd write a scene. It's fine. Throw it out. Write another one. What that kind of experience does for a writer is teach you how not to be precious about your words. And I think that's essential. Yeah, and be healthy about the brainstorming process. Yes. So you get ideas out there, even if they're not perfect, and you can refine them and yes. make them better. Um, and it trained, me to, to, it trained me for the rewrite process. And as we know, rewriting is, I would say, a good 70% of the job. Yeah. Is uh, outlining beforehand, uh, do you find that to be extremely vital to creating the It's the essential. It's essential. I never outline when I write my plays because that's a different process. It's a more um, subconscious kind of poetic process where you're following your gut. I found very early on you can't do that with a screenplay. It's um, because writing a screenplay is architecture, and you have to lay down that fundamental. You, you have to know where you're going. Yeah. You have to know the building blocks, or else, or else it's just a, a bloody mess. Yeah, and also um, sort of understanding certain points that are conveyed visually as opposed sometimes in a stage play, you would do a lot through dialogue, whether it be exposition or right. even uh, characterization. Uh, when you're adapting one of your stage plays, like Normal, for example, uh, do you find that there's sort of a difficult transition sometimes in taking a, a stage play scene and making it into a film scene, in a sense? The thing about adapting your own work from one medium to the other is that you, you can't you have to accept that's, that it's an entirely different experience for the audience. Um, so rather than be um, precious about your own work, I, I find it to be very exciting to completely rip apart one of my stage plays and try to reorder it into, into film. Um, the cool thing about stage to film is that in a stage play, you have to limit yourself to maybe a cast of five, ideally, because you're always thinking about, will a theater be able to afford my play? So I always keep my characters down to a minimum, not just financially, but also um, I never like to write... um, a character in a play that's only going to be on for five minutes because I always feel sorry for the poor actor sitting there for two hours you know, with nothing to do. <laughs> but in film, you can have a whole palette of characters, of day players, um, who are more than happy, of course, the actors are more than happy, of course, to be in your film and to have a day's work, but yeah. also you can populate a screenplay with um, small parts that give uh, your film texture. And I find that very exciting. And of course, as you had just said before, visually, 
um, it's a it's it's um, a medium for the camera, yeah. and the camera controls what the audience sees as opposed to a stage play. The audience's eyes can go anywhere. Um, plays are also very talky, and you create mood with dialogue as opposed to a simple look on camera. I remember when we were rehearsing, um, I was rehearsing Normal, um, the film adaptation of Looking for Normal with Tom Wilkinson and Jessica Lange. And uh, we were just going over one of the scenes in pre-production and Tom looked at me and he said, you know, Jane, you could very easily cut the next three lines because I could take care of it with just a look. And that was such a beautiful lesson for me. You can enter the character's subconscious just through looking at the face and the subtlety of the thought coming through. Yes. Uh, I was going to ask you uh, briefly about Mad Men, uh, which you worked on the second season. I believe you you won a Writer's Guild Award. Well, I... I don't think I personally won it because... It was like a team... It uh, was, it's a team thing, yeah. and um, I, I didn't work on it very long. Um, you know, when you join a writing staff, you really have to subsume your own vision to the vision of the, the, the creator of the series. And in Matt Weiner's case, you know, he has a, a really brilliant, quirky, interesting vision. Um, so when I was on staff, my job, along with the other staff members, was just to try to step into his head and write what uh, right, right to the vision of, of that particular show. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I'm not comfortable. I don't enjoy doing that as a writer. I, I, I'm kind of like a cat. I'm very <laughs> independent. And um, Does that require also sort of immersing yourself in the show, watching a lot of episodes? Um, maybe well, you do that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, when you're hired, of course, you have to know the show. Yeah. Um, that, that's the job of a, of a good staff member. Um, I think um, a great staff writer is so valuable to a showrunner. And a great, it, it takes a certain personality and a certain writing skill to be a great staff writer. One of those skills, if it's a comedy show, is an ability to come up with ideas on the spot. I happen to be a very private, rather slow and plotting writer, so the room always made me a bit agitated and nervous. I I didn't enjoy the, the give and take and especially punching up a script. It just doesn't happen to be my particular talent. Um, So I've dabbled on staff, but I I now realize I'm just not built for it.
Yeah, just very different process, sort of, you know, some, I guess sometimes on writing rooms, like you have, like one writer is assigned an episode. Yes. But then, as you say, there's a punch-up process where they bring yes. the screenplay into the room and they just start rewriting it with everybody in the room. Exactly. And even if you're assigned, and, you know, you can't let your ego get in the way as a staff writer because when you're assigned that script, everyone who just, who first joins a staff, they think, oh my God, I can't wait for my script, my script, my script's going to have my name on it. But the reality is most of the time you're assigned the script and your job basically is to just get the damn first draft down. And then it gets handed to the show creator. And then they often will completely rewrite it and put their stamp on it. And with a very with a show that has a very clear voice, that is absolutely fair and right. Yeah. With someone you think like Matthew Weiner and Aaron Sorkin, you absolutely. always hear them within the, you know, no matter who sort of yes. writes the episode, it's still yes. there, kind of touch. Yes. It's in there. Uh, so I was going to ask you about Olive Kittridge. Yes. Uh, which I believe, I was doing some research, it took two years to write. Uh, is that correct? It took a long time to... <laughs> Oh my God! It took a long time. I believe Francis McDormand uh, had brought you the novel originally, the Elizabeth Stroud novel. Uh, yes, Pulitzer Prize winning. <laughs> um, I I had read the novel for pure pleasure um, a few years before and just loved it. And then Fran called me up and said, "I I have the rights to it. You want to write it?" And and I said, "Absolutely." Um, but it was a very wacky process because. She brought it to HBO and series, not miniseries, but series snatched it up um, because um, it was Sue Nagel at the time. Um, Everyone who was in series at the time were all avid readers of great literature, so they were snatching up all these these, um, very erudite... That well, was a novel. Well. Game of Thrones is a different story. Yeah. Because it, it's very high concept in its fantasy and its action adventure, really, and it, if you get down to it, and, and it lends itself to a series format. Um, they, were all, they, they were also buying up things like the corrections, um, and uh, Middlesex and then Olive Kittredge these are all pieces of high literature which whose um, the power in those books is in the ending it has to end whereas a, a series you want to find a concept that you can sustain year after year after year. So Game of Thrones, I mean, there's a whole series of those. So yeah. it, it, can, it can go on. Um, series require a high concept. The Sopranos um, is a high concept, um, even Six Feet Under. Uh, Olive Kittredge is this very quiet, um, odd, soft story about 
this cranky woman and her husband and her son in, in, in a, a small, not terribly interesting town in Maine. So I, I tried to solve it as a series, but I finally went to everybody. And I said, you realize this will never, this, this, we could never sustain this for five, six years. You know that. Yeah. And they all looked really sad because <laughs> they loved the novel. And I said, can we please walk it across the hall to miniseries? And they said, okay. <laughs> and we got it to Carrie and Thalys um, over in Mini. And he, he's fantastically smart. And that's when finally we found the right form for it, and I could really get to work on it. Yeah, uh, delving into the novel, which is interesting because I believe it compromises of 13 short stories. Yes. Is that right? Yes. And Olive Kittridge as a character isn't always really the, the primary person. Um, in some stories, she's sort of the supporting player, which is even the case in like the first episode. Right. The pharmacy. Uh, so is that difficult? taking those 13 short stories and finding a uh, sort of a, a straight-laced narrative and figuring out how to parlay it through four episodes. And yes, well, um, and, and in half of those short stories, Olive isn't in it at all. And oddly enough, that's what appealed to Francis McDormand because Francis said to me, I, I you know... I shouldn't be the main character. Olive isn't the main character. I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of actor that is always a supporting role. And, and I've, I've never starred in a film. I'm always that interesting person that shows up halfway through. I said, but Fran, it's called Olive Kittredge, and you're Olive. You have to be, I have to make you the main character. And she said, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, th I think the audience will get sick of Olive. I, I don't know, and what what's so, I, I think what's so, I guess, assy about the series is that the first episode does kind of sidle up to Olive. It's not quite her point of view. And you get little glimpses of her, yes. but not through her eyes yes. completely. And the novel is deliberately written that way. Um, the way I solved it is, I, to me, the meat of it was following Henry and Olive's marriage. I, I divided the four episodes into four decades. And then I went back into the book and I paired certain of the stories that belonged in a certain period of Olive's life. And I match those themes. Um, for instance, um, well, episode one is pretty straight ahead, the first yeah. chapter. So you kind of delves into some flashbacks, flash, you know, in, it's interesting the scene with the dress. Yes. Where she's constructing the dress. Yes. And it, you know, it kind of flashes back, flashes yes. forward again. Uh, that was sort of, was that designed like that in the novel at all? Or was that? No. Um, and those two storylines, which is Olive Kittredge uh, finding her old student Kevin and and and, and basically uh, making sure he doesn't shoot his shoot himself, and the marriage, uh, her going to the wedding of her of their son, 
Those were two entirely different chapters, and I, I thought they would be a beautiful pairing because the themes of those are, the theme is Olive uh, taking care of one young man while he's, she's losing another, which is her son. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I also want to talk about the casting of Olive Kit Richards, which is, which is amazing, uh, Richard Jenkins. It's really a, a career role for him, uh, especially the first episode. Yes. I mean, I just was watching that. I'm like, he deserves the Emmy. He's magnificent. <laughs> Fran always knew she wanted him. She always knew that. And even while I was writing and trying to solve it, she kept saying to me, we have to have Richard Jenkins. And she said to HBO, Richard Jenkins. And she said to Lisa Childenko when she came on, yeah. we have to have Richard. And Richard is magnificent. He's, he's a deeply intelligent actor who really knows how to um, take apart a role and uh, figure out the beats. And he was able to give Henry a dignity and a strength. Um, Henry, if you first look at him, looks like, uh, uh, people have used the word milk toast, but, but Richard Jenkins uh, makes Henry's optimism uh, powerful. Yeah, and it's interesting to see him develop from the first episode and to see how their marriage functions in that first episode yes. where he's giving so much attention to Denise. Yes. And all of us sort of off to the side, you know, judging their friendship, so to speak. Yes, and we and can't then, blame him because yeah. she's a wretch. And then uh, in episode two and three, you see how much they've reconnected and yes. how much Henry is, you know, pushing to make gestures to show how appreciative he is of Olive. Yes. I found that really interesting to see, you know, at the beginning of their marriage, it was rocky, and then you see it kind of get better, which, is, which isn't always sort of the way you see narratives work sometimes. So I think that was a great, that's a great element to the novel and a great element to the story. Well, the novel begins in that section of a marriage when I, I think uh, people may be at their most restless in middle age, when, when truly all that early sexual energy is completely worn off, and then you're faced with each other and wondering, is this someone who's going to stimulate me for the stimulate me, you know, speak to my heart for the rest of my life? And each of them in episode one falls madly in love with someone who's just like them. And my, my philosophy about marriage is that um, people who are just like us might be uh, really compelling because they're a reflection of us. But really, if you want a relationship that lasts, you yeah. need to go for your opposite, even if they make your life miserable. And what's interesting also is you see how they balance each other out. Like, for example, in the, the hospital scene where there's that whole standoff. Yes, yes. Uh, you, you see how, you know, one is kind of panicked. You know, Frances McDormand is playing the scene so, like, relaxed and, like, uh, Henry is trying to comfort the nurse and yes. she kind of sees the past of his relationship with the niece coming out. So that was an interesting uh, dynamic there. 
Um, and I also wanted to talk about uh, Bill Murray, who has a you know very brief appearance yes. in the miniseries, but yet his character really punctuates those small moments that he's in. Yes, um, that was Fran's idea as well, because they had just done uh, Moonrise Kingdom, and uh, she uh, actually was in charge of getting a hold of him, because Bill Murray doesn't have an agent, and mm -hmm. And he barely has a phone, and it's really, really hard to get a hold of him. It, but, you know, and so Fran would just keep sending him emails and, and leaving messages and trying to get... And, and finally he said yes. And I wasn't entirely sold on that choice because when you write a script, you, you have an image of the character in mind. And I, you know, I saw... Oh, I can't even tell you what actor I saw in it, but I, I thought, you know, it should be a very Republican-looking man. But I think Bill Murray was a brilliant, brilliant choice because he stepped into the shoes of this rather arrogant, judgmental, cut-off man who goes, went to Yale and, and listens to Rush Limbaugh and drives a fancy sports car just to prove that he can. A man who you would dismiss as a total right-wing ass. And Bill Murray has such a nascent sadness. Yeah in his eyes and, and a, a softness and a weariness about life. He gave that character such a marvelous dimension. And what's great is in the, uh, the dinner scene that they have in the restaurant, how he kind of balances her out yes. when, she, when he's challenging her about having not called her son. Yes. And, uh, you know, he has some funny lines in there about, so like, what is he overseas? You know, yes. I thought that was yes. kind of humorous. Uh, and really brilliantly played. Uh, so I was going to ask about Lisa Cheladenko. Um, so when did she come on to the project and how was she involved in developing? She uh, came on really basically when we were ready to go into production. Um, the, the scripts were... I had already written the scripts and um, uh, HBO said, yeah, let's go ahead, and then Playtone, um, Tom Hanks' company, came on as, as um, producers um, for production. So as, as soon as they said, we're ready for a green light, we all sat down and said, who do we want to direct it? And, and we, we got Lisa, um, who was a wonderful choice. And... Basically, before, in pre-production, the two of us sat down and she just went over all four scripts with me and asked questions. Um, and there was very little rewriting except for budget cuts. Um, because we, we had to, like, cut, like, a hundred grand off the budget. So, really? so we went over scenes that we could delete. Um, is that a matter of cutting expensive locations in a sense, or sets that you don't have yeah, to Yeah, you over? combine locations. Um, I cut scenes. Uh, we had to cut for time. And you know what? I, I don't even remember what we cut. 
And that's what happens. That happens in, in every film I've ever written or written and directed. I've, I've rarely missed what gets cut. Um, I don't know if uh, there's a Wallace Stegner book called uh, The Angle of Repose. And the term angle of repose is an engineering term and it means if, if you're like buttressing up a mine or a building and gravity starts crushing down, um, things get taken away and finally everything settles and that's the angle of repose. Yeah. And that's the same thing that happens when you're writing a screenplay and getting a screenplay ready for production. Things get cut, scenes get reordered, gravity presses it down, a few things get crushed, but a, a good project finds the right angle of repose. And it's organic, and it's right, and it this, the, the cut script, the um, edited script, that final draft is, is just in that perfect shape so that it can support the rigors of production. Yeah, and sometimes you, know, you can find ways to be more economical and still get the same yes. points across. Yes, And it can be done, you know, elegantly and simply. Yes. Uh, and then I wanted to ask as well, um, as far as being on set, um, once Lisa Cheldenko came on, um, did you want to sort of be involved in the day-to-day -day production process? Not at all. At all. Um, uh, I, I, th I think if the script is, is ready to go and whole and you don't really need any rewrites, you become an appendix. I visited the set a little bit just because I wanted to, and and I'm a you know called an executive producer, but but really, um, Gary Getzman, the executive producer at Playtone, he was the one that ran the day to day. It wasn't my job anymore, and having directed, I know how. Um, unpleasant it, it is to have too many extra people on set. Mm -hmm. you, you know, there are those monitor vultures who, you know, stand in front of the playback monitor and click their tongues. And, and um, I, I don't, I never want to be one of those. Um, and I like to be useful. So, you know, I came and I went and I said, live and be well. And, and, and Lisa's a wonderful director. I mean, it, you know, just as Elizabeth Strout, who wrote Olive, trusted me to take her book and do what I had to do, then it was my turn to turn the script over to Lisa and trust that she would do what she needed to do. Yeah. And that's, I, I think, um, that's the only way your fellow artists and collaborators can do their work. If, if you say... Take it, make it, it's yours. Yeah, and giving them that freedom, it can elevate the material and yes. make moments that you never would have thought of to begin with. Yes. Uh, when you saw the finished uh, episodes, uh, what was your impression? Was there a moment that you thought really came off the page uh, and was even better than what you had written? Oh, always, yeah. But, you know, especially with friends. 
performance, which is just so brilliant and or and and true and there's not a false move that she makes and and we talked about how wonderful Richard Jenkins is and then um Zoe Kazan Jesse Plemons um John Gallagher John Gallagher yeah. and then Corey Michael Smith who yeah. played Kevin Col- adult Kevin Colson was was marvelous. Rosemary DeWitt. Uh, oh yeah. She played that you know the mental illness aspect yes. of it. Yes. It was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so I also wanted to uh, to ask you about an earlier film, just to kind of wrap everything up, sure. uh, that I really enjoyed called It Could Happen to You, which yes. kind of has a Frank Capra esque yes, whimsy yes. to it that I really yes. enjoyed. Uh, was that a was that an original script that you had developed on your own? Yeah, it was an original, it was a spec script. Um and I wrote it after my dad passed away because he was the most generous man I ever knew. And I and I thought, and I was always, and I was also fascinated with lottery r- winners and what money does to people. And I wanted the message of the film to be, uh, generosity gets repaid. It got it got sold. Um, Andrew Bergman basically kind of took the script over, rewrote it his way. Um, so, you know, the story, my story is there. My characters aren't entirely there. Um, it was my first big feature film. Um, and it was my first taste of what it's like to... Um, have something you've written out of your heart taken away from you and redone. That's not even my title. Actually, uh, well, your listeners can't see this, but um, I, I, we're, we're sitting here in my downstairs writing studio, and I have all the posters up, and um, what I have up here is the Swedish poster for It Could Happen to You, and in Swedish it has my original title, which is um, Cop Gives Waitress $2 Million Tip, which I thought was a much better title. I think it could have, and they just retitled it, It Could Happen to You, which is one of those, you know there are those vague titles that no one can really remember? Yeah. And, and that's my feeling about that. It's title. funny, I think there was a Jack Lemon movie with Judy Holliday yeah. that was also called It Could Happen to You. Yeah. In the 50s. I, yeah, yeah I, I think they could have done I I think they should have I, I love long titles. My first one my first big piece was Cop uh, um The Positively True Adventures of the Alleged Texas Cheerleader Murdering Mom. Mm-hmm. Um um, oh, here's another one, the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio. I like long titles. Yeah. And then uh, is there any, uh, is there a project that you're working on now that you're developing? I'm, um, I have the honor and the burden of uh, adapting another truly great novel called um, Cutting for Stone by um, Abraham Verghese. <laughs> it will be quite epic. And it will be in six parts. And um, for HBO, um, uh, an English company, Kudos, is doing the development money, but HBO has its eye on it. Wow. Um, and it's it's very interesting 
being in the half-cooked stage of a script, which is the most frightening time when you're trying to solve a piece and find find the um, the tone of it and even just solve it and even uh, structurally trying to yeah I'm still I, I I'm still solving it structurally and it's a very it's a quite an epic complicated piece it's different it's as hard as olive but in different ways but every day right you know olive just premiered on HBO on Monday it's Friday and I've been trying to write all week and because we now write on computers which is attached to our emails um, it's I, I think every writer who's listening to this know how tempting it is when you're just slightly blocked on a line or a scene Oh, I think I'll just check my emails, right? So all week I've been getting these wonderful emails from friends and even strangers and Facebook about Olive, 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 and oh my God, it's so brilliant, the way you solved it. And that can do two things to a writer. Either it will pump you up or it will scare the living hell out of yourself because... I'm, I'm now getting feedback on a script that took me years to solve, but I forgot, as in childbirth, I forgot how hard it was. Mm-hmm. So now I'm, I'm facing myself as the writer of Olive Kittredge, like as, almost as a competitor. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I'm, I have to forget that that person who's now getting all the the kudos so and you're brilliant brilliant um is is not the person who's now struggling to solve this new piece um and it's a schizophrenic it, it, and believe me it's much better to be writing a new struggling through a new script with good reviews as opposed to boy that was a failure because that that can spin you out as well but any any backsplash from a recently released piece will affect the way you write your next piece so uh, I have to be very disciplined in in doing escape quit on mail and the Um, internet and just putting myself back into the head of being a beginner writer because you have to write from a state of humility because every script is new every um you sit down to write at the computer you have to write out of a state of fragility yeah and almost being able to to judge your writing yourself and having that kind of inner yes ness to know like yes you know, this I can change this I can make better or yes this is great and this yes. does work or will the critics say eh this wasn't as good as the last one mm-hmm. 
You have to shut that junk out of your head. Definitely. What do you think, you know, with um, all of Kitridge and you being a director yourself and a writer and you have such a strong female lead and a female director, you know, how it's so important and so rare these days in film and television, how do you think the industry can cultivate more of that? You know, like the strong female voice, you know, female directors, female writers. And well, uh, I have to tell you, it, the fellows at HBO couldn't be prouder to have three hot women, you know, <laughs> under their belt. I mean, they're just they're ju- they're just the head of HBO. They're you know, at all the the events, they they all give us big hugs and um, and you can tell that they're really pleased and also really relieved that it's a good piece. And that they can say to the world, "Look, look, we we have three. You know, we're we're encouraging the female voice." Mm. Um, I think there's a very strong female presence in television. Mm. If you look at all the direct, uh, look at the credits of directors on uh, Homeland. Um, Orange is the New Black um, uh, God we could name a, a whole bunch of them um, Transparent a um, lot of female directors on those shows doing really strong mm. powerful uh, cr- well crafted work um, female showrunners who are, are, are doing just mind blowingly good work um, feature film is problematic not just for the female voice but for indie male voices yeah. because as we know right now um, tentpole movies are what uh, make the bi- they yeah. make the big bucks for the studios um, television can afford to go quirkier yeah. and more independent yeah, you know, I think someone we interviewed too recently said what what was for film in the seventies is what television is today. Yes, that's a wonderful statement. Yeah, I, yes. love I believe it was uh, Michael Phillips. Michael Phillips yeah, yeah. said that. He told us that, and I think it's very true. I mean, yeah. you see the most innovative work coming out of. Oh yeah. And also, too, structurally, you can do so many more interesting things to make the story come alive. Whereas in film, you have two hours, the three act structure. Or in the miniseries and the series, you can really go in different directions. Right. Well, but I, did you just see? Did you see Birdman yet? Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, and Boyhood. So there, mm. there are. You know, there will be every year around this t- special time of, mm-hmm. of of the fall awards season ish kind of films that are coming out. You're you're going to get to see the three or four fabulously innovative films that somehow miraculously get financed. And, and you know, film, film is not dead. Mm. It, it, there are just fewer opportunities, but there are still marvelous examples.